Richmond, Virginia had actually seen one of the greatest expressions of interracial labor solidarity in the history of the United States. And I suggest that there is nowhere in Richmond, no plaque, no markers, no monuments. There's nothing being taught in the schools. This is not something that is part of the known history that the working class of the 21st century carries with them. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. I'm your host, Chris Garlock. For 150 years, Richmond's place in history has been as the capital of the Confederacy. But this label hides a much richer and much more complex history. On today's show, We'll hear from Peter Ratcliffe, co-executive director of the Eastside Freedom Library. He's a retired professor of history at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the author of Black Labor in Richmond, 1865 to 1890. As he reveals part of that hidden history, that of black and white workers in the second half of the 19th century. Here's Labor History Today producer Patrick Dixon. This week, we're going to share with you a segment from the first in a series of talks that have been organized by the Virginia Worker, exploring working-class history in the Commonwealth of Virginia. The guest for this inaugural gathering was Peter Ratcliffe, labor historian and the founding co-executive director of the Eastside Freedom Library in St. Paul, Minnesota. Ratcliffe is known as the author of Hard Pressed in the Heartland, the Hormel Strike and the Future of the Labor Movement, and, appropriately for the purposes of this talk, Black Labour in Richmond, 1865-1890. to In this discussion, Brackliffe approaches Richmond not in its role as the capital of the Confederacy, but rather as an important arena of conflict for the Knights of Labour in the 1880s, presenting episodes in which they approach questions of racial equity, electoral politics, and the use of secondary boycotts, while we're only able to share with you an extract from this event, you can watch the full event via the link in the show notes and find out more about the Virginia Worker and their activism at theVirginiaWorker.com. Here's Peter Ratcliffe. One of the things that I thought of in, in preparation for tonight was all of this hubbub in the state of Virginia and elsewhere about getting critical race theory out of the schools. And those who have been arguing against what they're calling critical race theory say that it's meant to make white kids feel bad. And I wanted to you know, name tonight's talk in search of solidarity because a big part of what I want to emphasize is that what's also being shut down are stories and a history of workers in solidarity with each other, of African-American and white workers organizing together, immigrants and native-born workers organizing together, men and women organizing together. And that's a history that the wealthy and powerful do not want uh, young people to learn. So this seems very appropriate here or there where you are in Virginia, where this statue of Robert E. Lee, I argue, was created 
in order to erase solidarity between black and white workers and in order to erase the history of that solidarity which had threatened power in Richmond and in the state of Virginia in the late 1880s. As you all know, that statue became a wonderful site of what my old mentor George Rawick would have called working class self-activity. People found it to be a space uh, where they could express themselves. And it also became a space of great creativity with the use of projections and more creativity. And this just amazing sense of involvement and power that this statue became the center of. And so what I've been trying to argue in my book, Black Labor in Richmond, which is now hard for me to believe, almost 40 years old. And in my interventions around this statue and the movement to demand that the statue be taken down, that I've wanted to emphasize that Richmond, Virginia, renowned or reviled as the capital of the Confederacy, renowned or reviled as the center of opposition to school integration, in the 1950s and 1960s, that Richmond, Virginia had actually seen one of the greatest expressions of interracial labor solidarity in the history of the United States. And I suggest that there is nowhere in Richmond, no plaque, no markers, no monuments. There's nothing being taught in the schools. This is not something that is part of the known history that the working class of the 21st century carries with them. So I wanna share some of that history with you tonight, explain how it was possible and explore with you how it became erased. So at the center of this story was a remarkable labor organization that, that called itself the Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor, which began in the late 1860s and reached its peak in 1886, the same year that it had such a significant impact in Richmond. This was the slogan, that is the most perfect government in which an injury to one is the concern of all. Those of you involved here this evening who might be active with the IWW or aware of the IWW know that the IWW modified this slogan to say, an injury to one is an injury to all. Um, the Knights of Labor were the first labor organization in the United States to take in African-Americans as well as whites, unskilled workers as well as skilled workers, immigrants as well as the native born, women as well as men. Richmond was a great fulcrum for the Knights of Labor. There's a wonderful book uh, by my friend Rob Weir 
called Beyond Labor's Veil, The Culture of the Knights of Labor. It's something that I highly recommend. At the Eastside Freedom Library, we like to say that we want to place the past and the present in a conversation with each other. And I know that many of you with us tonight are active in organizing. And one of the things that the Knights of Labor has really stood out for with me, my generation of scholars and activists, is that the Knights of Labor realized that workers were already organized. And the role of the Knights of Labor was to link up these various networks of organization, people who worked in the same place or lived in the same neighborhood or in the case of African-Americans, worshiped at the same church, that there were all these ways that there were bonds among working people and a culture of mutuality or mutual aid, of solidarity that could be drawn into and inform and infuse labor organization. The Knights of Labor had a pretty elaborate code purposes and essential principles of the Knights of Labor. Every member was given a copy of this to understand what was expected of them and what they could expect of their fellows and sisters within the organization. In Richmond, there were two district assemblies, district assembly number 84, which was white, and district assembly number 92, which was African-American. But the the two assemblies which brought together workers in different local assemblies also worked on a variety of projects uh, together, which is what I want to talk about this evening. One of the things the Knights of Labor did was they started their own newspaper, the Richmond Labor Herald, edited by a printer named William Mullen, which appeared weekly. You can see the subtitle, Official Organ of District Assemblies 84 and 92. So the white and black assemblies worked together to support this newspaper. And this wasn't only a newspaper of news. It was also a newspaper that served the movement. So one of the important campaigns that the Knights of Labor in Richmond launched began in 1884 around the issue of convict labor. Now, there was in the city of Richmond a really almost Dickensian state penitentiary, the kind of place that I'm sure that parents would walk their children's by, their children by and tell them, you better behave or you could end up in this place. It was a way to intimidate people. And the dominant ideology of the elite in Richmond was that something like the penitentiary should be a place where the imprisoned should have to pay for their own upkeep. And so the penitentiary offered space and, it, and very cheap labor to local entrepreneurs. And one of those major workplaces 
was a barrel shop inside the penitentiary. Barrels were very important to the Richmond manufacturing economy, tobacco, flour, iron nails, three of the major products of the local economy were shipped in barrels. And so barrel making was an important part of the economy. Barrel makers were called coopers. And coopers in the free labor market organized and struggled with the goal of earning $2.50 a day. The Virginia State Penitentiary offered imprisoned labor at 25 cents a day, 10 times less. And as the Knights of Labor began to organize in Richmond, they had the very good idea that by picking what issues to organize around, they could build the kind of movement that they wanted to see take shape. And so they weren't just against convict labor. They wanted to support Coopers, which was the most racially diverse skilled trade in the city because African-Americans on tobacco plantations had learned how to make barrels. And as some of them migrated into the city, they brought their skills and knowledge with them. And so coopering was a trade that was almost 50-50 African-American and white. But their ability to earn a reasonable wage was being undermined by this sh convict shop in the penitentiary. And so the Knights decreed in late 1884 that they were gonna shut that shop down. And among the white members of the Knights of Labor, there were people who either themselves or were the children of people who had grown up in Ireland. And in Ireland, the movement for independence had developed a tactic that they called the boycott. And so the Knights of Labor said, we're going to use the boycott as a way to shut this barrel shop inside the state penitentiary. Now, one of the things that's always frustrating for a historian like me is when we find the minutes of a meeting, we often find that the actual discussion is not recorded in the minutes. And I can just imagine the discussion at a meeting where someone gets up and says, I move that we call for a boycott of the barrel shop in the penitentiary. And someone else at the meeting might say, brother or sister, When's the last time you bought a barrel? How the hell are you gonna boycott barrels? And so the discussion would have gone on and they finally decided they were going to boycott flour. Great choice because 
every family connected to the Knights of Labor purchased flour. And they were going to boycott all flour that came in a barrel that had been made in the penitentiary. And then someone must have said, we could have even more of an impact if we didn't just boycott the flour, but that we boycott every store that sells flour that's made in the made in a barrel that's made in the penitentiary. Now, the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 would make so-called secondary boycotts illegal. That would have been against the law. And there's an interesting story yet to tell about how the employers tried to fight against this boycott. But my point is also that the newspaper the Richmond Labor Herald was used as a tool in the campaign to shut the barrel shop in the penitentiary. And the way the Knights of Labor did this was on the front page of the Labor Herald after the boycott got going, they would include two lists of stores. And one list would be titled, these are the stores that you should boycott. And the other list would be, these are the stores that it's okay to shop at. And of course, by picking shopping for a consumer good like flour, the Knights of Labor were also making sure, not only that they fought for the wages and working conditions and security of both African-American and white workers, but that they were asking whole families, whoever might shop for that family, whether it's the woman in the household, whether it's the children in the household, that it became their responsibility to enforce the boycott. Within a year, the major flour mill, Hacksaw Crenshaw, who had been using penitentiary-made barrels, announced that they would no longer use barrels made in the penitentiary, that they would buy barrels from unionized cooper shops, and the Knights of Labor had a great victory. They had also deepened and strengthened their presence throughout the city of Richmond and Manchester the, to the south, that, that they had brought thousands of workers together in this campaign. That experience, let me back up and say one other thing. No archives or library kept the Richmond Labor Herald. So it's not at the Virginia State Library. It's not at the Valentine Museum. There is no collection of the Richmond Labor Herald. The only way I was able to find issues of it was there was a lawsuit against the Richmond Labor Herald for promoting a boycott. And six months of the Richmond Labor Herald were entered into an evidence box at the Hustings Court. 
And that was the only way I was able to find this resource. Now, let me go on, say just a little bit more with this image. The big story came right after the victory in this boycott. And that is in late 1885, Richmond businessmen, city fathers, the Richmond City Council and mayor began to talk about the need to build a new city hall. That at the end of the Civil War, when Jefferson Davis and the Confederates hightailed it out of Richmond, they set fire to the city's main business district and Richmond City Hall had been burned to the ground. From 1865 to 1885, the city government of Richmond rented a variety of temporary spaces. By the early to mid 1880s, the elite in the South began to sing a new tune that they called the New South. They weren't going to be moaning over the lost cause. They were going to be promoting a new, modern, energized, forward-looking South. And the elite in Richmond said, well, it's pretty embarrassing to be advocating a new South and not even having a city hall. Let's build a new city hall. And the city council and the mayor announced in early 1886 that they were indeed going to apportion the money to build a new city hall, but being responsible, and they didn't say capitalists, but I think that is the way they were thinking and what we can say, we need to build this new city hall as cheaply as we possibly can. Let's find the cheapest materials. Let's find the cheapest labor. Let's put the, the work out to contract. We'll build that city hall, but we're not gonna have to raise taxes or put any pressure on people in order to do it. And the Knights of Labor had just had this great success with the boycott of the Hacksaw Crenshaw flour mill and the penitentiary shop making barrels. And the Knights of Labor began to articulate through the Labor Herald and in their meetings, a vision in which they said, a city hall should be a monument to what a city is all about. And we think Richmond is all about its working people. And so we think the new city hall should be built out of local material. It should be built by local workers. Those local workers should be employed directly by the city, not by private contractors. They should be employed on the eight hour day. They should be paid a living wage. And in the language of the day, they said colored workers should have the opportunity to gain skilled jobs on this project. And they circulated petitions and 7,000 Richmond residents signed their petition. 
and they brought it to the city council and the city council said in a language that we would be, I think, all too familiar with today, the city council said, we would be fiscally irresponsible if we built a new city hall on the terms that you're proposing. And the Knights of Labor responded to the rejection of their petition that they would organize a third political party outside of both the Democrats and the Republicans, that they would run in the May 1886 city council election, that they intended to win, take control of the city government and build the city hall that they had in mind. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what they did. They organized something called the Working Men's Reform Party. They ran a slate for city council that was both African-American and white. They swept the election. They took control of the city government. And they built what those of you who live in Richmond or have visited Richmond know is an absolutely handsome building. It's no longer the city hall. In fact, I believe it's now a place where a number of nonprofits have their offices. And as I'm very fond of saying, there is no plaque on the building that tells you how it came to be built. We live in the internet age. There is a Wikipedia page for the old city hall in Richmond that does that talks about the architect, but does not mention the Knights of Labor or the way the city hall came to be built. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. A current question is which workers are entitled to union representation? Who really gets counted as a worker? And who decides wages, hours, and conditions? These were the questions that divided the campus of Yale University. On this day in labor history, the year was 1992. The Graduate Employee Student Organization on campus began a three-day strike. They were supported by Locals 34 and 35, part of the Hotel and Restaurant Employees International Union, who represented the clerical workers, dining service staff, and technical and maintenance workers at Yale University, as well as the dietary workers at Yale New Haven Hospital. These workers stood in solidarity with the Graduate Employee and walked out in a show of support. They recognized the important work the graduate employees did for the university, including teaching classes and grading papers. Yet, Yale administrators argued the graduate employees' primary role was that of the student, and they were therefore not entitled to union representation. The year before, the graduate students had held a one-day strike, but did not gain union recognition. As a result of the 1992 strike, some graduate students received improved funding. They also received inclusion on the Yale Executive Committee, an administrative body. Yet, they were again denied the right to be in a union. Another strike three years later had the same result. Today, there are 31 recognized graduate student unions in the United States. There are 18 that remain 
unrecognized. One of these is at Yale University. Today, universities more and more seek to cut costs by having graduate students and adjuncts teach courses. These workers are paid far less than tenured professors, and they are increasingly turning to the idea of unionization. The question remains, will they be recognized as real workers, and will they have a say in their wages, hours, and conditions? Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That'll really help folks to find the show. Labor History and Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to The Virginia Worker, which hosted Peter Ratcliffe's talk. We've got a link in the show notes to their video of the complete talk, and you can find out more about them at thevirginiaworker.com. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes... Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time.